0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, the great 20th century preacher of Westminster Chapel in London said that if you want to know what Christianity really is, the more you know of the book of Acts, the better. So we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 5 you know, we learn in different ways, don't we? And the Bible has different ways of teaching us. The New Testament, our New Testaments are made up of, what, the four Gospels, um, giving us a history of Jesus' life, His death and resurrection, His teachings. And most of the New Testament is made up of the apostolic letters written to the churches, and they give us didactic or or direct teaching, doctrine, so that we understand our faith and how we're to live in light of these truths. And the bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles is this book of Acts, part two of Luke's writings, and it gives us this history of the birth of the church and the spread of the Gospel beginning in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And what we've touched on so far is what? The the ascension of Jesus is where uh, Acts begins, his instruction to his disciples, his ascension. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in a position of power and authority. He pours out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. To equip and empower his disciples in their witness. And witness is a word that we just see repeated throughout Acts. This is the, what, Pentecost, it's the fulfillment we've seen of Joel's prophecy. It's a a reverse tower of Babel where the nations are gathered and united and hearing the gospel in their own languages miraculously. It's the birth of the New Testament church, the the fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham and that he would be the father of many nations. The Holy Spirit is, is given at this time, not just to kings, not just to prophets, but to women and to children, to young and old as a part of the new covenant. And what we repeatedly see is this witness of the apostles. They are witnesses. They preach the gospel. They preach Jesus and His death and resurrection. They preach the guilt of sin. And the people need to turn from their sin and, and look to Jesus, who's gonna, who will have mercy on them and forgive them and give everlasting life. So this is the consistent message. This is their their calling. They were eyewitnesses to these things. And now the Holy Spirit has empowered them to give this witness. And just like the prophets before them, just like Jesus, in fact, this power, it manifests in the apostles in signs and wonders. The healing of a... 40-year-old man who was lame from birth. A man everyone knew, could not deny. They they walked by him every day on the way to the temple for prayers. And now he's leaping and praising the Lord. They were apostles, they were witnesses, not doing these miracles in their own power, Not to start up their own ministry or gain a a following for themselves. They act, they speak as witnesses to the power and authority of Jesus. And we see this phrase repeated as well. In the name, in the name, by the name of Jesus, which means by the power, by the authority of Jesus. And so we see that even though Jesus, even though he has ascended on high, he's still present. He's still active in all of these things. It's his power, it's by his authority, for his glory, that these things are done, that the church is built. So, thinking of Martin Lloyd Jones, this, what we what we are seeing in the book of Acts, this is real. Christianity, not that we go around today performing signs and wonders, but that the gospel of Jesus is our calling, that he is the one working through us by his spirit for the sake of his glory. The goal isn't to amaze people with signs and wonders or to bring even temporary Healing, but to bring about a healing for dying souls, a healing that will last for all eternity. The goal is that ultimate healing in Jesus. This is what we have to offer. And it seems that what Christianity really is is found in the reaction, it's found in the reaction of those who receive the gospel. We see I think a key passage at the end of chapter 2 that describes this. And it says they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. And all who believed were together and had all of these things in common. Christianity, it's not a ticket. It's not a way to heaven. It's not solely... An individual personal relationship. It's Jesus' body. It's His gospel, the teachings of His word, the fellowship of his body, resting in him as we dine together at his table, as we pray together, as we love one another, that the parts that make up Christ's body that we're united. That we're connected to each other. This is real Christianity. And so love and unity and a, and a corporate devotion to all of these things. This is real Christianity. And this is especially hard, don't you think, in our Western individualistic culture. So as the body of Christ, would you join me together in prayer? Before we go to God's Word, Father, we give thanks for your faithfulness, for your goodness in saving us, not only as individuals, but saving us into a body, the body of your Son Jesus. Thank you for this particular fellowship of believers known as Bear Creek Church and the many blessings that you've given to us over these 25 years. Thank you, Lord, for Pastor Dale and his dear wife, Nancy. The the innumerable ways in which you've used them. Not It's not them, it's you working through them. How you've used them in our lives. Lord, I know the The blessing they desire is for your church, for the witness of this body, for the sake of Jesus. So we pray that you would empower and equip us to be a church that continues to be a witness to Jesus. Cause us to be devoted to him, to his body, to his word, to a vital relationship of prayer. And unity. Thank you for this time of worship where we, where where you, where you, Lord, calibrate our hearts to love you. To find satisfaction for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While we left off in chapter 5 with more descriptions of Jesus working through the apostles. And what began in Jerusalem is now beginning to spread to the towns around Jerusalem as people gather, and we see them bringing their sick, coming to faith in Christ. And if you remember, once again, we saw this in chapter 4, but once again we see it in chapter 5, the religious leaders react They react by arresting the apostles. They throw them in prison. And an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and tells them to go back to the temple, to go back and preach the gospel. And the next morning, the religious leaders, they gather, they realize that the apostles are not in the prison. They go back and get them. There they are preaching. And they've already told them not to preach, and so they bring them back and threaten them again. And let's pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 5. Follow along as I read. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word. You know, of all the things that happened in the lives of these apostles, do you ever read a narrative and you think, why is this there? There's a lot that happened. Why did Luke include it? Why did God have Luke include this account? They were arrested in chapter 4. We get the point. Why this one too? Well, we could think, is it to communicate ongoing and increased persecution? Is it, is it showing maybe an answer to, remember that they prayed the first time, Lord, give us boldness. So is it showing the answer that they are bold, even in the midst of continuing persecution? Is it to show the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem now to the regions of Judea and Samaria, and that the consequences are the same. All of these things are true. But what I find really fascinating about this account is what we can learn. There are some different reactions to the gospel here. That's what I want to focus on and pay attention to and And point out to you. There's a response of the religious leaders. There's a response of Gamaliel. And then a very strange response of believers at the end. It's, you know, it's easier for us to learn a lesson. I want to give some lessons from these responses. And I find it easier to learn a lesson when you see it in the experience of another person. Right? Is, um, you know, pride and selfishness, it's really obvious when you see it in another person's um, attitude, their behavior, their experience, instead of with yourself. With ourselves, what do we tend to do? We tend to be defensive. We don't like having these things pointed out to us. We don't quickly see. And when we're the ones being confronted, we yeah, we resist. We make excuses. Think of how the prophet Nathan confronted King David. David committed this terrible sin and probably was a bit happy with himself that he got away with it, seemingly. And then God sends Nathan. And instead of Nathan directly confronting David with his sin. He tells David a story. You know it. It's about a a poor family and their precious little lamb and how this rich man who, who needed to make a quick meal, and he had lots of lambs. He took their lamb that was like a pet to this family, and he butchered it and made a meal from it. And, of course, David is outraged, and he says what? This man needs to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. A good way to get the point across. Sometimes a story, sometimes a narrative, someone else's experience can be a powerful lesson for us to learn. Do you read this account in Acts? Do you read this account in Acts and think, why are these religious leaders so incredibly enraged to the point of wanting to kill them? What, Why? It doesn't seem reasonable, does it? Uh, I think there's some lessons that we can learn from these various responses that we see in our text. One lesson is that a natural person is hostile to God. We didactically... Literature and scripture tells us this directly. Acts 5 shows us this in story, in narrative. A natural person is hostile to God. And by this, I don't think that every unbeliever is going to have you arrested and beaten. uh, Or that they'll be continually screaming at God with their fist clenched saying, I hate you! There are levels of hostility. But at the heart of hostility is an opposition. It's rebellion. It's a refusal to submit. Again, why are these religious leaders so hostile? Why would they want to kill people for doing good? They just healed a man... That everyone knows who's been suffering for 40 years, and the people are rejoicing, and they want to kill them. Why would they want to prevent blessing? Why would they want to stop rejoicing? Why can't they just get along and submit to the obvious fact that God is clearly at work here? The natural person is hostile to God, that's why. And by natural person, I mean a person who is not changed, who is not regenerated, who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God. Yes, they're religious leaders, and there's a glorious history to their religion. They are, as Paul describes them in Romans 9, brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They are religious leaders of the children of God, and yet they're hostile to God. They're lost. They don't believe. Why? Why are they so hostile? Paul in Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That last bit is really interesting. Indeed, it cannot. They cannot. They're incapable of submitting to God. Yes, left to themselves, if God does not intervene and and change their hearts, if God doesn't do what he did to Saul on the road, right? Just absolutely change him. That's why Saul became Paul. So if God doesn't intervene and change their heart and open their eyes and cause them to be born again, they will not repent. They cannot, they cannot repent and see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And this was me. And it's hard for me to see because I was born into the church. I have no idea when I became a Christian. Just found myself believing. But biblically speaking, this was me. If you love Jesus now, this was you in some sense, hostile to God. Your hostility may not have looked like theirs, but you were a natural person. And God's Word says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There's an order to this. God regenerates us, causes us to be born again so that we can see and respond and we will respond. So we have these direct teachings But then we see it illustrated, lived out in the reaction of these religious leaders in Acts 5. Again, is it reasonable? Is it reasonable that these religious leaders would be so enraged that they'd want to kill the apostles for preaching a gospel that offers everyone mercy and forgiveness, even them? To want to kill people for doing good healing people who are suffering is this reasonable it's not reasonable and yet biblically speaking it makes sense it makes sense in light of scripture and what it says about the the nature of man and this is why this is why we pray this is why we don't just keep banging our heads against the wall in witnessing to someone, wondering why they can't see what's so obvious to us. This is why we pray it's spiritually discerned. It's not by our convincing argument alone. It's the sovereign work of God using our argument. Just like Peter healed this lame man, and he says, It's not me. Well, it sort of was. But it ultimately is God. It's His power. It's by His authority. Peter's a vessel. He's a tool. You're a vessel used of God in a different kind of healing. It's an important lesson for us because it gives us a right, it gives us a compassion for the lost, doesn't it? If they offend us, if they get angry at us, we should think, well, of course. Of course this person is hostile to God. They can't submit to him. I'd better pray. I'd better pray and ask God to use my words or anyone's words to be the tool that he uses to grant them repentance. Remember I pointed that out in previous um, sermons in Acts. It says God grants repentance. Pray that God grant repentance to give them spiritual life, cause them to be born again so that they can respond with repentance and faith. It's an important lesson because it helps us understand our world's hostility towards Christianity. We shouldn't be confused by this. The irrational hostility shouldn't surprise us. If we understand God's word and what it says about the natural man, it shouldn't surprise us. It's important because it helps us to understand that we're not the ones with the power to save. Just like the apostles, it's not us. It's by the power, the sovereign authority of God that this person is healed. It's by the name of Jesus. We marvel at At a physical healing like this man who was born lame. We marvel at a physical healing and we know that it must be of God. And a spiritual healing, it's so much more significant, isn't it? It's not just for a time, it's for eternity. It's the power of God to save. So the lesson that we can learn from these religious leaders is that the people's hostility makes sense. And we ought to have that much more compassion towards them. Also, what does it say about the grace of God toward us? I'm not saved because I'm smarter or wiser. It's grace. It was just... A, if it was just for me, if it was just a natural decision that I was capable of making then how could I not boast about the most wise decision that anyone could possibly make affecting all of eternity? But it's not that. I could not make that decision. You could not make that decision in your natural state. God had to breathe life into you, take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. We read about these men... What we we read that these men, that they're so enraged that they want to kill them. And instead of thinking, what's their problem? Why so unreasonable? I'd never think to to be that way. We ought to think, oh, if not for the grace of God. And Lord, have mercy that they, they know not what they do. It's a good lesson because otherwise it's us and not God. It's us versus them. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We deserve God's blessing. They deserve God's judgment. What happened to grace? No, salvation is a gift of God. And the natural man is hostile to God. So if they hated Jesus, it makes sense that they're going to hate us. That's what Jesus said. A second lesson that we see is in this response of Gamaliel. Really interesting. Uh, Let me put it this way. Here's the lesson that we learned. There are different ways to reject Jesus. There are many unbelievers who who are kind and reasonable and moral, good people. Good people that we might even think are Christians because of their... Their appreciation for Christianity, their tolerance of Christianity—they m- maybe have a good opinion, to speak highly of Jesus. Gamaliel is clearly different from the enraged religious leaders who want to kill them. He's concerned even about the possibility of opposing God, and so he wants to warn them. You know, just, just leave them alone. Let's let's take the wait and see approach, and it and it has a sense of wisdom about it, doesn't it? But it's really it's worldly wisdom when you think about it. What does he say? You know, if it, if it's of man, it's not going to last. Is that true? How many world religions have existed for thousands of years? They're of men. They've lasted. It's not true. Well, there's some you know there's some wisdom to the the approach well we don't want to be opposing god so there there's much to admire about gamaliel he's um, what the apostle paul's teacher mentor verse 34 tells us that he's a teacher of the law that all of the people think highly of him and honor him and apparently the religious leaders they think highly of him and honor him as well because they listen to him and they actually do what he suggests that they do their hostility you know it was it was obvious while gamaliel's was maybe more of an intellectual it's kind of a it's it's like he's given this law brief this opinion law opinion on the matter he's He's not really invested emotionally in this so much. But it's still a type of rebellion and hostility. Gamaliel would have fit right in with our culture, wouldn't he? Probably a coexist bumper sticker, wanting to get along, to give respect to all the religions, see the positive in each of them. It's a pragmatic approach. Whatever works, just wait and see. But it also lacks spiritual discernment. You know people like this? That guy that you like, that you play golf with, who's a Mormon, great family guy, has an admiration or respect for Jesus. Many people, they're, they're not violent in their rejection of the gospel. They can be really polite They can be very respectful. They can show interest. But a polite rejection of the true Jesus is still a rejection of God's grace. It's just a different, less obvious one than the religious leaders. A partial acceptance of the gospel is not an actual acceptance or faith. Gamaliel is saying, you know... There might be something to this, but we'd better just wait and see. Ultimately, Christianity, it's all or nothing. It's like that famous quote C.S. Lewis gives in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come With any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The religious leaders spit at him and killed him. They were hostile. They wanted to shut him up. While Gamaliel's unbelief was nice. But ultimately it was patronizing nonsense. With no spiritual discernment. And I say this because look at his argument. Look at his argument. He picks out a couple of political rebels who gained a following and he compares them to Jesus and his apostles. Jesus, who is all over their own scriptures. Jesus the promised Messiah that everyone should have anticipated. Jesus, who, who never sinned, who claimed to be the Messiah, even deity, and who performed miracles unlike any that had ever seen before. Jesus, who was compassionate and kind, who was unjustly murdered by their own doing. Jesus, who, who rose from the dead and was around them for 40 days, publicly, He compares these political rebels to this. And then his apostles, they preach this good news. And and they begin to do the same kinds of miracles that testify to the fact that, that God approves of their ministry. All of this happens publicly. The people are cut to the heart. And in thousands they are repenting. Showing love, selling their stuff to love one another. This is marvelous. This is public. This is obvious. This is his comparison? Really? All of this good and obvious signs and wonders? Think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus. What did he say? You must be from God by the things that you're doing. No one could do these things. All of this good. These obvious signs and wonders. And Gamaliel compares this to a couple of insurrectionists. It's naive at best. It's just a nicer form of rejecting God. It's kind of like telling your children, you know, go clean your room. No, I'm sorry. We, we would say it nicer than that. Please go clean your room. And one One of your child says, No! Maybe even kicks you in the shin. And the other says, with a smile, calm, wants to debate you and says, You know, making my bed is... It seems like a waste of time, don't you think? I mean, I don't mind. I just have to make it again in the morning. So, you know, they just rebel in a different sort of way. As a parent... We're not good with a nicer form of rebellion. So let's not be confused by by celebrities who say nice things about Jesus or nice people that we know who say wonderful things, respectful things about Jesus, but whose lives reveal a different kind of hostility toward God. Saying Jesus is a great teacher or a moral example while denying his claims and thus his authority over you is ultimately no different than these openly hostile religious leaders who want to kill him, who want to kill his apostles. So we need to understand the the spiritual reality and that all natural people, including us before we were saved, we had a hostility toward God and the only way anyone is saved is by god overcoming that hostility by taking out a heart of stone by graciously giving us a heart of flesh or a heart that that now loves him and will repent and have faith in him and only this kind of miracle can explain can ex- only this miracle can explain what we see in verses 41 and 42. Really? Don't you think? It's remarkable. After being beaten and charged once again to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, they were released. And here's what we read. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? That that they were freed? Rejoicing that they weren't killed? Rejoicing, no, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. How strange. How unnatural. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The religious leaders had a violent response to the gospel. And Gamaliel's response was much more reasonable and kind. But ultimately just another form of hostility. And this third response, it is truly unnatural. How is it that people are beaten and threatened? And they don't immediately play the victim and seek retribution for the unjust way that they were treated. How can it be that they would reply with rejoicing? How can it be that they would keep doing the very thing that led to their suffering, knowing knowing that it's going to happen again? It's unnatural, and that's the point. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned natural people those who are not born again by the spirit of god do not accept the things of the spirit they would not accept god's sovereignty over this event and that he is somehow intending even this for their good their hearts would not accept this as from the hand of god and they certainly wouldn't love jesus so much that they'd celebrate they'd celebrate the fact That Jesus was right. That just as they hated him, they're being hated. Hated by the world. It's unnatural. It's spiritually discerned. And we read this and think, how strange. And hopefully we think, how beautiful. How beautiful. Oh, I hope that if I ever suffer because of the gospel, that it would be my heart's attitude as well. The lesson we should get from this is that this is what real Christianity looks like. This is how a real faith should respond. That instead of shaking our fists at God over our sufferings, that we would so love and honor Jesus that we would think, oh, what an honor. What an honor it is that I might join him in, his, in this category. I'm in the same category of suffering. What an honor. That's their thinking. What an honor. For the sake of the gospel, what an honor that I, would, that I too would suffer a similar shame. It seems presumptuous for us to think that this would be our response We've never suffered anything like this. But we do, you know, we do have opportunities for practice, don't we? Opportunities for much lesser sufferings as we, like them, do verse 42. And we share the gospel with those around us and maybe we get laughed at or called a fool or today called a bigot. Uh, If our country continues to grow in its hostility towards christianity then i suppose that practice might be helpful someday as we value jesus and the gospel more than our own comfort god's word god's word does not return void and what we learn from this narrative is that there's always a response to the gospel there's always a response to god's word Some are openly hostile, some are respectful, but unless they embrace Jesus for who he truly is, then they're lost. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is good news. He is transforming. And as his church, we should resemble the unnatural hope and love and joy that we read about in this book of Acts. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for giving us this witness to the work of your Spirit in the lives of those hated and persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Lord, give us this witness Give us this unnatural love and devotion to Jesus. Use us, we pray, for the sake of your glory. And give us joy in Jesus. Give us a hunger for your word. A hunger for prayer, for the unity of this church. So that we might be witnesses for another 25 years. And Lord willing, beyond that. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you for speaking light into our dark hearts that we could see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray in his great name. Amen.